Hi, it's Beth. Thanks for being here today. This episode is an interview with South of the 49th. He shares about the journey with his wife after her diagnosis with a brain tumor. He has not shared his identity due to the privacy of his kids, but has learned how to use TikTok as a way to share his story and document memories for his children. My Permission To program will begin at the end of October. It's all about finding permission to be you. After loss, our identity changes. If we don't put time and energy into claiming who we are, we can spend a lot of time feeling lost and ungrounded. Please visit my website for more information. You can find my email and website in the show notes. If you are enjoying the podcast, please remember to leave a rating and review. Thanks for listening. Hi, this is Beth and welcome to the Daughters Without Moms podcast. Although today I do not have a daughter without a mom with me. Tonight I have um, a man that's going to share the story of the journey with his wife and um, he's going to introduce himself to you. I am going to say that we are not going to mention his name, his real name, because um, he has twin children that he'll tell you about that he is trying to protect their privacy, which I 100% wholeheartedly support. So, um, but you came to me through a friend in the Griefstagram community, and she is a TikTok person and I am not, but this is south of the 49th from TikTok. If you are a TikTok fan, I don't even have TikTok yet, but after this, I might. Um, I've always just associated it with my 20-year-old daughter and and the things that, that they watch on there. So, um, but you're, you're um, bringing a new light to the, uh, the app for me. So I appreciate you being here. Um, I appreciate your willingness to be able to share your story with us. And I'm going to turn it over to you and let you introduce yourself and tell us your story. Thank you, Beth. I really appreciate it. And I love what you're doing. I love the theme of daughters without a mom, because I'm very familiar with that. My, my wife was a daughter without a mom after her mom passed away of cancer. My daughter is a daughter without a mom. So I can definitely identify. And, and um, this grief journey has just taught me so much. There's so many people suffering and so many people that have lost loved ones in places you wouldn't expect. And I found that on TikTok, which is why I'm here. I would have never been here if it wasn't for that app. And I had this crazy idea one night when I couldn't sleep to post a video about the story of the day my wife was diagnosed with cancer. And because of that video, my account kind of exploded. And now I have uh, 135,000 followers, I think is the latest number. And I've just kind of continued that story. So I think I'm just going to start off by telling the story that I, that I told with, with my video. And, and so um, it starts by, uh, I, I was at work. Um, my wife wasn't feeling well. And unfortunately, I was five hours away. So I couldn't um, attend to her. I was just communicating with her via text and checking on her. And I was a little, a little worried about her and, and uh, I was working and, and then I started to feel a little sick and, and uh, I didn't think much of it, but the sickness just kind of came on like a wave. And, and I, was, I was in a car at the time and, and I told the guy that was in the car with me, he's like, I got to get out of this car. I think I'm going to throw up. So I stepped out of the car 
And that's the last thing I remember. I passed out and fell headfirst on the pavement and cracked my head open. And my friend called the doctor or called the paramedics and they came over, they checked me out. Um, I came to pretty quickly, but I had a huge contusion on my head. Um, I was bleeding quite badly. Uh, they took me to the hospital. Um, they did a CAT scan and they found nothing wrong with me. Um, they patched me up. They gave me some gauze, the stitches. And a few hours later, believe it or not, I was back at work. But because of the trauma to my head, my, my supervisors could not let me work. They were like, you have to go home. You look like a mess. So I drove that five-hour trip home. And when I walk in the door, my wife is nowhere to be found. The kids are rummaging through the pantry, trying to look for food. And I find out that my wife can't even hardly get out of bed. She's so weak and so disoriented and in and out of consciousness. And, and I was like, we have to go to the hospital. And, and my wife was kind of fighting me a little bit saying that, no, we, we can't, we don't have any place for the kids to go. What are we gonna do with the kids? And then after going back and forth, um, she finally relented, uh, which actually ended up being the next morning, dropped the kids off at church, took her to the hospital, and they did a CAT scan on her brain. And they found a lemon-sized tumor in the right frontal lobe of her brain, precisely the plain, same place where I fell and hit my head, precisely the same place where I had that hematoma which I didn't realize until two or three days later when I looked in the mirror. And, and after the doctors explained that if we had not gotten to the hospital when we did, because the pressure on my wife's brain was so great that she was in danger of falling into a coma and possibly suffering brain damage. So, there was no doubt in my mind that was divine intervention. And so it kind of took away a lot of my fear because I knew God was in control. Um, he had me lose consciousness at the precise moment that I needed to. Or as I tell people, he knocked me out because I was too boneheaded to stay home and take care of my wife. Instead, I went to work. So I learned that lesson the hard way. But leading up to that point, she had um, suffered headaches as long as I knew her. Um, she'd always been popping Advil and drinking coffee. Um, she she's she had struggled with energy problems. We we had you know taken her to the doctor and never in our wildest dreams did we think that she had a brain tumor. Um, it was classified as a grade two oligodendroglioma. It was a very slow growing tumor, but a very advanced tumor because it had uh, kind of grown into all different regions of her brain. But the, the focal point of the tumor was in the right frontal lobe of her brain. So they were able to conduct emergency surgery and it was removed, but there were all sorts of complications after that. She was actually out of the hospital, I think in five days after that first surgery, she made it out of the hospital the day before the kid's birthday, the day before their third birthday. So we have 
we have twins, boy, girl twins. They were born um, in 2009 and my wife was diagnosed in 2012. Um, she, I, I couldn't believe it. Now she never remembered that birthday at all, um, but she was there and we have the pictures and the memories and, and that was amazing. But shortly after that birthday celebration, she started having um, more nausea and more disorientation and struggled with consciousness. And I, I, I couldn't believe it. I'm like, how could we be going through this again? And so I took her to the hospital and there was a fluid buildup on her brain. She was suffering from hydrocephalus. And so they had to remove the fluid and then they sent her back home again. Well, this happened repeatedly. Um, and I remember one day the hydrocephalus was so bad that um, she was losing consciousness so quickly that I didn't have time to wait for the ambulance. I had to get her to the hospital now. And, and I threw her in the car and it was rush hour. Traffic was at a standstill. I remember driving down the shoulder of, of the interstate in Virginia at 120 miles an hour just to get her to the hospital because I knew that, that the longer she was unconscious, the greater the chance of brain damage because of the intracranial pressure that she had already been suffering from. Um, and then once we, we got there, um, they had a bed ready for her. I had called ahead and they relieved the pressure from her brain. I was like, we're not leaving this hospital until this is resolved. We've done this too many times. And this is where you as a caregiver, you, you've got to actually be very assertive because a lot of times, you know, doctors and surgeons, they're just checking boxes, you know, and, and you are the one that knows your spouse or your loved one better than anyone else. You can read exactly if something is wrong or not. And, and I know because of my attentiveness to her condition that, that her life was probably saved at least two or three times because of this, or at least prevented her from having permanent brain damage. So she stayed in the hospital um, and they could not resolve the hydrocephalus issue. So they ended up having to surgically install a shunt. Um, and once the shunt was installed, that seemed to solve all the problems. And, and then she came home. Went through chemotherapy for a year. Um, it was pretty successful. It ended up uh, providing her with a stable uh, situation where none of the cancer cells were actually growing. I would say they were dormant. Um, they were there, but, but not expanding or not growing. And, and that was the case for about six years. Um, we had some really, really great, great memories from those years. And and I think back to the miracle that happened when I passed out. I think back to the amazing neurosurgeon we had and the job that he did. And, and we have so many people to thank for those years that our kids now have a living memory of their mom because of that, that they would have never otherwise had had she passed away when they were three. Um, and I think our perspective on life completely changed. I'd always been working a lot. I'd always been um, busy. And, and our focus was family time, trips, took a lot of vacations, um, just spending time together. And, and then in 2017, my wife um, had what she called a panic attack while she was driving. And I just happened to be away from or out of town at the time. And none of us understood what was happening. When, as soon as I got home, we got her checked out. We went to the neurologist. 
and they suspected she was suffering from seizures. Um, and basically what would happen was her, her body would just lock up momentarily and, and she wouldn't be able to move. She wouldn't fall down, but she wouldn't be able to move. She wouldn't be able to speak. And then as quickly as it started, it would end. And these, these seizures um, would happen a couple of times a day. And then they happened with increasing frequency and intensity, you know, as time went on, um, they did an um, encephalocardiogram to try and see what was happening and see where the source of the seizures was. And they couldn't, couldn't find it. They did scans on her brain. They didn't see any cancer growth or any changes um, but I was of course concerned that the cancer was causing this, but there was no way to actually prove it and no way to know exactly where that, where it was coming from as hard as they tried to identify it. They just couldn't. And then sure enough, in August of 2018, uh, the cancer just came back with a vengeance. Um, and what was originally a grade two had advanced to a grade three or grade four astrocytoma. And she went in for another surgery which was successful, same neurosurgeon. And then she underwent chemotherapy and radiation. And that was tough. That was tough. But let me, let me give you a little bit of background about my wife. Um, when, I, when I first met her, I fell in love with her pure heart more than anything else. She, she had the purest soul of anyone I had ever known. She was so kind and so outgoing and people just followed her around. It was, I met her in college and she always had this crowd that just kind of followed her everywhere. And it was like that until her last day on this earth. And I was just grateful to be one of those people following her around. And then as time went on, we discovered that it became just the two of us hanging out at the end of the night when everybody else had gone their separate ways. And I just couldn't get enough time with her. Um, we spent that year, I guess that would have been 1996, 97, every moment that we could together. And of course I was from Canada. She was from Florida. We met in Georgia. It, it, we ended up having a long distance relationship for six months. That was not working. I ended up getting the car, driving 3000 miles and I went right back and I said, you know, let's get married. <laughs> so we did in 1998 and we just had the greatest adventure. Not long after we were married, we went to South America. We taught school down there in Paraguay for two years. We traveled all over the continent. We hiked the Inca trail visited the penguins in Chile, had such a blast, came back to the U.S. My wife became a teacher. She taught for 10 years, um, Fairfax County Public Schools. And she's an incredible teacher. The, the students just adored her, absolutely adored her, just like everyone else adored her. Her colleagues adored her. So jumping back, to the chemotherapy and radiation. Whenever she walked in that radiation clinic, everyone just lit up because she was such a joy, just an absolute joy to be around. And 
they all knew who she was and she knew who they were. And, and it was one of the most depressing places to be and have to go visit. And yet when, when she walked in that room, it just lit up. And, and I will never forget when she was sitting with two older gentlemen who were much later in life having to go through radiation. And she, she just started chatting with them. And before, we, before you knew it, she got called to go get her treatment. And here were these two men, their faces just lit up, talking to one another and realizing that they had both served in the same branch of the armed forces. Two new best friends because my wife was there. And, and I, the, I had so many experiences with, of that throughout my life where there were people that would have never known each other if it wasn't for her. She just managed to bring people together no matter, you know, gender, race, religion. It, there were no categories with her. Everybody was a precious human being. And that radiation was tough. You know, I didn't, it, it, it robbed her of her beauty to a large degree. It, it just robbed her of her energy. Um, just having to wear that ugly mask in that machine. Here was the most precious person on earth. Just suffering right in front of my eyes. And I would, couldn't help but think of how much more I deserved that than she did. And I just wish I could have gone through it for her. But she made it through the radiation. And then I committed our time to making the most of every minute we had. And I had booked a cruise and she was definitely not hundred percent, but we went on that cruise anyway, went into the Caribbean and, and, and I remember um, she was struggling with her memory at that point, but she was still, even though she was low energy, she still was her same bubbly self. And she met so many people on that cruise ship and made friends with so many people. And then one of them would, come back and and say hi and and hug her and then she'd say who was that because <laughs> she wouldn't remember and it was just so saddening but amusing at the same time and it was in april of 2019 when she woke up one morning and she didn't know where she was. She didn't know where the kids were. She didn't know what day it was. She thought her mom was still alive. She thought her dad was still alive. Her sense of time was just gone, completely gone. And I think that was the scariest moment for me because all of a sudden the person I knew wasn't there anymore. And I panicked, I didn't know what to do. I took her to the oncologist, made an emergency appointment. They couldn't explain what was going on. Obviously it had something to do with the cancer, but they couldn't pinpoint it exactly. But um, 
it was tough for, for several weeks. For several weeks, she woke up every single day thinking it was Sunday. Every day she thought it was Sunday. And I thought of all the days of the week, why does she think it's Sunday? Well, it was her favorite day. We went to church every Sunday. She always served every Sunday. She was a greeter. She would greet everyone that came in, everybody who knew she was. It was, it was her favorite day of the week. And she thought every day was Sunday. So she would try to get out of bed. And at that point, she was already struggling a bit with her balance. So she would try to get out of bed and then I would have to quickly go and, and catch her because she wouldn't forget. She wouldn't remember that she was struggling with her balance. So you're, you're battling this balance issue and the memory issue combined. And goodness, that was, it was so hard for me. I had to got, I got out a whiteboard. I would write down our schedule every day. I would write down where the kids were, where I was, what we were doing, what was upcoming. And then we did that for a while. And then, and then slowly her memory started to fix itself. It was, it was just, it was like her short-term memory, I would say a year to two years that she was struggling with. Um, her long-term memory was actually not terrible, but it was the short-term memory that was really, really affected. And I think she also adapted to it. She learned that she struggled with short-term memory. So she, she became more quiet, which was sad because she, she did, she stopped. She really didn't like being corrected all the time about what day it was or, or whatever she was wrong about. So, and for somebody that was so bubbly and outgoing, that was a hard thing to watch. But it was in September, I remember the day in September 17th of 2019. It was the day that our dog was getting so ill that we had to have her put down. And that dog had followed her everywhere. Her dog's name was Itsy. She was a Bichon. She followed her everywhere and took care of her, um, just always checking on her, always on the bed with her. And then she passed away, our dog. And that was a sad day. And, we, and when we walked out of the clinic, after putting the dog down, my wife stumbled and almost fell. She'd been struggling with her balance a little bit, but it was the first time where I was concerned that she was really going to hurt herself. And I had to keep a really close eye on her. I had to stop going to work. I had to help her up and down the stairs. It was exhausting. I, I, I pleaded for help. I got my uh, sister to come help. And also my niece, who was a college student at the time, 20 years old, quit college or, or suspended her studies just to come and help me. What a saint. What an absolute saint she is. I could not believe it when she came. And she, without even asking, just cleaned the house, cooked the food, she helped me do all of these ugly things about caregiving that you should never ask a kid that age to do. And she was a lifesaver, a lifesaver and a cheery person and just lifted all of her spirits, lifted the kids' spirits, helped take care of them. I mean, if it was not for her and if it was not for my sister and not for some very, very close friends, I don't know if I would have made it through that time. 
And in early November, early November of 2019, the oncologist advised that her balance issues were due to the cancer moving to her spine. And that was really nothing more we could do. She couldn't survive another surgery. Um, not that the surgery would have done anything anyway. So they started hospice care. And my wife had been begging me to go to the beach. And, and, and just the way she was asking, she knew that it was going to be the last time. And it was her birthday that first week of November also. And we had typically tried to go to the beach on her birthday, the Outer Banks. So hospice care is starting. My wife wants to go to the beach. So what do I do? I take my wife to the beach. <laughs> and we went there and we had the most amazing time, took the greatest pictures. I had a wheelchair for her. I wheeled her all the way up to the dunes and carried her over the sand and parked her in a chair on the beach. And she just watched the kids play. And it was, it was like a, a late summer. The weather was nice. It was the low seventies. I mean, it couldn't have been better. And that's why I think it's so important. You never know the day or the hour you're going to lose your loved one, but you do get that sense and your loved one knows too. And, and she knew, and, and I wanted to make sure I did everything that she asked for. And we made it home. We started hospice care. Um, I had no idea how hospice care worked. I learned very quickly that I was doing most of the work <laughs> and, you know, changing her and, keeping her fed and taken care of and medicated and all that stuff. The nurse would visit once or twice a week. And my niece was helping too at the time. And then my wife came up with another idea. She wanted to spend Thanksgiving with her family and they couldn't make it to us. So the only way we were going to be able to do it was to go down to them. And they were in Florida and we were in Virginia. So against my better judgment, I booked a plane ticket for all four of us to go down, actually five, brought my niece as well. And I had a friend come pick us up. We carried my wife into the car. We carried her onto the plane. We made it down to Florida. I arranged for hospice care down there for her while we were there. And we spent one last Thanksgiving together with her brother and her sister and her nieces Sadly, her mom and dad had passed away, both of cancer, a few years before. So yes, my, my wife was a daughter without a mom. She missed her more than anything. And she talked about seeing her once again in heaven constantly. And we made it down there for Thanksgiving. And my, I remember my wife being so ecstatic. Her brother's a great cook. About getting to eat his cooking. and posting an Instagram picture of herself with just because her, her mobility was limited her she had trouble using her digits and her thumbs like whatever she typed in didn't make any sense but she managed to post it <laughs> and and I just I, I look at that picture all the time because it's just this look of contentment 
that she was able to spend the end of her life in a place that she wanted to be more than anywhere else. And we, we packed her up, we got back on the plane, we made it back home. It was December 1st, 2019. And that was the last trip she would ever take. And she declined very quickly after that. But she still didn't want to miss Christmas. So here we were setting up decorations, just like everything was normal, setting up the Christmas tree, the Christmas lights, buying presents, wrapping them, sticking them under the tree. I mean, this had to be the most special Christmas, right? And of course, her bed was right next to the tree. And right around this time, it was, it was becoming increasingly difficult for me to care for her. And we were just un unable to hire. We, we, we didn't have the money to hire somebody to care for her. So one of, one of the ladies at the hospice company that was providing for us, Compass's Hospice, put out an all call to everyone she knew that could volunteer their time to take care of my wife. And she had a lot of volunteers and I couldn't believe it. So we had caregivers all through the holidays. It was incredible. All of it free. We didn't have to pay for any of it. And they were there from about eight in the morning till, you know, six o'clock at night. And we were so grateful for that because it just allowed us to spend time together and enjoy Christmas and we opened presents and I didn't have to worry about anything because we had someone there. And, and, and the, and the I remember, I'll never forget the lady that helped take care of my wife on Christmas day was a Muslim. And she was working because she didn't celebrate Christmas. But she allowed us to celebrate Christmas. Um, we put all the gifts on her bed and took pictures together. And those are really our last family photos together. Because once she made it through Christmas, each day she was weaker and weaker and weaker. And one other thing I'll never forget is the last time her chaplain visited. And he came and checked on her and he said, how are you doing? And at this point she wasn't speaking, but her, her mouth moved, her lips moved ever so slightly. And so I had to know what she said. And he asked her again, he said, how are you doing? I just couldn't make it out. But a third time he asked her, how are you feeling? And I heard it this time. She said, overjoyed. She said, overjoyed. And at this point, her eyes weren't focusing. She was always looking in the distance. She's always looking beyond us. 
And I knew she wasn't suffering. I knew she had one foot in heaven. And that brought me so much comfort. And that was one of the last words she ever spoke. And then she passed away on New Year's Eve, 2019, of all the days to pass away. Because no one loved to party more than she did. And she had the best New Year's Eve celebration she could have wished for. After incredible life, she had so many visitors come through that last month. So many well-wishers, so many cards, so many meals cooked for us. All of the love that she poured out came back to her. It was an incredible thing to witness. And then it was over. January 1st, New Year's Day, I'll never forget, sitting in the living room with this cursed empty bed still there. I just wanted to get that out of the house. I couldn't even stand to look at it. But just staring at my sister and the two of us not knowing what to do because we'd been working so hard for so long that we just did not know what to do with ourselves. And I had no idea how exhausted I was. No idea. And I think I'm still recovering. But we, we made the arrangements. We planned for my wife to be buried next to her mom and dad in Florida. And I wasn't expecting much, but when we had the caravan leave the funeral home and we turned the corner and drove onto the cemetery grounds. There was 200 people standing there. And she hadn't lived in Florida since 1998. But they remembered her and they wanted to wish her the best and they wanted to support her family and show their respects. And it's like the love was just continuing to pour out even though she was gone and then we had her funeral on january 11th 2020 in virginia where we were living and there was about 600 people that came people from all different walks of life my wife said throughout her life the one thing that she wanted more than anything else was to have all of her friends in one room but better than that, to have all of her friends together in church with her. Because like I said, Sunday was her favorite day. And finally, her wish came true. And everyone there heard her story, how much she loved God. The reason she was who she was is because she did love God. Because if you love God, it enables you to love people. It's like second nature. And everybody heard that message. Everybody from, you know, her friends, her colleagues, neighbors, 
all the people that she befriended from all different walks of life. And shortly after she died, somebody alerted me to a video that my wife had made on Marco Polo where she had scripted and listed all of her wishes for her funeral. And I showed it to the staff of the church and they fulfilled each one of them. And number one was she wanted worship songs sung. She wanted the gospel message preached. She wanted glitter and balloons. And she wanted a Prosecco toast. <laughs> and we accomplished all of that, including a Prosecco toast after the celebration service was over and her brother conducted the toast. And it was probably the most memorable celebration service that anyone attended will ever, ever see. It was remarkable. But then after that, then everything goes quiet again. The hustle and bustle, all the visitors, all the friends that were coming by, all the help that you had, it's gone. It was just the three of us. And it was two months later, COVID hit. And then the isolation escalated. All of the playmates my children had from the neighborhood and from church and all of a sudden they couldn't come over anymore. And I was devastated. I did not understand. I could not understand how my wife died of cancer. Why is everybody afraid of this? I'm not afraid of it. Why can't we just continue on as normal? Like I was just screaming for help and nobody would come out of their isolated spaces. And it was so hard for me. It was so hard for me. And I was trying to come up with all these creative ways and creative things to keep my kids mentally strong. And one of the things I did was I planned a baseball game and I invited all of our neighbors and friends to go just hoping somebody would say yes. Cause I thought what's a better social distancing game than baseball. And that was, that was the first moment of light. And I think that was in late May of 2020. I think that was the first moment of light I experienced during COVID. The fact that we were actually able to play a game together outside and be with real people. Goodness, that was, that was a really tough time. And then slowly as time went on, I convinced a very close-knit, tight circle of friends to allow their kids to play with my kids. And then we just kind of kept to ourselves and didn't intermingle with other people. And that's kind of how we got through it after that. But during that period of isolation, I didn't know what to do with myself. And I ended up keeping my daughter entertained with silly TikTok videos. And then one night I couldn't sleep. It was, I couldn't sleep because the idea of sharing my wife's story on TikTok would just not leave my mind. 
And so I woke up one Saturday morning. I recorded the video. I told the story of the day my wife was diagnosed with cancer. And now it's up to 8.7 million views. And it's the only reason I'm here talking to you right now. I am the last person on earth to be on social media or have any desire to be on social media. It happened completely by accident. But just like I fell on my head, there's no doubt in my mind that God has orchestrated this. I don't know exactly where it's going to lead, but it does give me hope. And the kids are doing well. They're enjoying school. They're happy. They're functional. And they're a lot of what keeps me going. They're 12 years old now. They've been without mom for... I guess 19 months, 20 months. And uh, we're not completely healed, but we're doing okay. And, and the theme that I try to promote in my videos is that it's okay to be sad, but it's also okay to find joy at the same time. The two can coexist. I think that's just the message I, I want to leave with everyone. We may never completely get over our grief, but that doesn't mean we're not going to make the most of life. Well, I have to tell you, as you're describing your wife, um, the word that I wrote down was magnetic. From how you described her, she seemed to me to just have one of those magnetic personalities that, that she just drew. That word was often used to describe her. Was it? Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. That's what I, I wrote down here with the asterisk, so I didn't yeah. get to tell you. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, that's just that's just amazing. Um, and I love how you say that, you know, all that love that she had poured out came back to her. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, I having, having lost like this, I mean, it does, it has made me at least, I don't know about you, but it has made me consider my own legacy and, you know, and what, what will, what will people say about me and what will they remember about me? Because there's a quote, it's not what you say to people, it's how you made them feel, you yes. know? Um, and I do think like it's those, it's those connections and the relationships and the memories, uh, that is what's gonna keep her legacy living for you and your kids. And now through, your outlet that you've that you've developed that you're going to influence the life of, of a lot of people who are looking for that type of connection. You know? And it's and it, that account is dedicated completely to her. If she could choose joy in spite of her circumstances throughout all of her suffering, her ordeals, her treatments. I mean, we feel sad. We feel like we miss her. There's a huge hole in our lives. But if she could choose joy in her circumstance, then we can do the same. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and we can share that with others right right that's what we're trying that's what we're trying to do yeah and I wholeheartedly agree with the and this is something that I've learned through my own journey is that mm-hmm. I think we're brought up with like that you can only feel one emotion at a time but that's not yeah. true it's you can absolutely true. feel joy and sadness all at the same time um 
and uh, Inside Out is one of my favorite movies. Yes, me too. <laughs> Pete, the writer of, of that film, Pete Doctor, is, is one of my inspirations for my TikTok videos. He, he, he always said that if you, can, if you can tell a sad tale to a merry tune or tell a happy tale to a sad tune, you can reach right into somebody's heart and generate emotion. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. the one thing the heart can't handle is two emotions at the same time. Once, when you're feeling those two emotions, that's when the tears come. Mm-hmm. Right. But that's when the healing comes too. Right. Yep. Mm-hmm. And, and that's why his movies are so powerful. Yeah. I can watch it over and over and yeah. over again. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I mean, I think you, I think you, you know, wrapped it up pretty eloquently that that's, you know, it's okay to be sad and it's also okay to find joy at the same time. Um, and, mm-hmm. you know, you and I, before we started recording, we did talk a little bit about this, the grief community and how we both have been startled by how supportive uh, the community has been uh, for you on your journey and for me as well. Um, and so I think that's, you know, the humanity is, is here and uh, sharing it with others just helps provide that sense of hope and maybe, you know, shed some light for some people um, to know that the journey, I always, I always can call it a journey that it is, it is hard, but um, you can grow with your grief. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I've, I have had an incredible outpouring of support just from sharing my story. And, and that's not even something I was looking for. But, but now that I've experienced that, it has done nothing but help my healing. Mm-hmm. Um, just to know that there are like-minded people out there. And that is the beauty of a platform like TikTok. Yes, people use it to watch silly, goofy videos and to escape from reality. But the thing about that app is it groups people by shared mutual interest, as opposed to Facebook, where you're stuck following people that you're related to and you don't necessarily <laughs> agree with and drive you crazy, right? TikTok <laughs> right. doesn't like that. I mean, they, they, you, you would probably be never grouped with a family member. You're going to be grouped with people that have shared mutual interest and shared experience. Mm-hmm. And, and they comment, comments of support, but also there's, there's many people that comment these heart-wrenching comments of maybe they've lost a parent or or a child and they're feeling desperate or alone and I wish there was more I could do I do my best to read all of them and to show my support and say I'm praying for them or or sending them hugs or I know how you feel but I would have never imagined there was that large of a need out there and I think what happens is people that are looking to escape the hurt that they're feeling come across a video like mine and all of a sudden it causes that hurt to surface and they weren't expecting it there is is such a great need out there and I'm not the only one doing it there's other other accounts that focus on grief as well and and I just think it's such a powerful powerful tool and uh yeah I encourage people to check it out, even though it can be a little bit of a black hole sometimes, <laughs> you spend too much time on it. There's a lot of good being done on, on TikTok, definitely. Mm-hmm. It's, I've been doing this for about a year and I've done a lot of research and have learned a lot of things, but I'm just kind of at the point where I just want to share my, my thoughts and my you know, opinion. And yeah. um, I have three stories to share. So, so you're encouraging me here that I might have, yes. to, I might have to check it out. 
And hey, when you know Facebook and Instagram went down the other day, TikTok didn't go down. Exactly. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> oh, geez. Yes. So I'm going to link your um, your uh, profile name, you know, south of the 49th for the TikTok fans that are out there so that they can find you there. Well, I just want to thank you for having me on okay. and, and thank all the listeners out there. And, and if there's anything, you know, any questions you want to ask me, reach out to me on TikTok or Instagram and, and I'd be happy to respond. Yeah. And if and if somebody is like me and they're not on TikTok and you would like to connect, send me an email to daughterswithoutmoms at gmail.com and I'll touch base with you and see if that that you're um, agreeable to that as well. So absolutely. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing with us today. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Beth. If you'd like more information on my thoughts about the grief journey, please visit my website, www.yourgriefjourney.com. If you'd be interested in sharing your story on the podcast, please send me an email to daughterswithoutmoms at gmail.com.